it is good to see the few and the faithful on this Super Bowl Sunday. I shared a story this morning that I was not going to share tonight, but I'm going to share it because there are so few of you here. I grew up in a small Baptist church in Fort Worth, Texas. And if you grow up in Fort Worth, Texas, the only thing you like about Dallas, Texas, is the Dallas Cowboys. And my family are huge, huge Cowboys fans. But no bigger fan than a woman in our church who is called, and she has now gone home to be with the Lord, but she was called Sister Charlie May Cook. And in a black Baptist church, everyone is brother or sister. So Sister Charlie May Cook. And Sister Charlie May Cook always sat on the right side of the church on the, on the second row, second pew. And we usually sat behind Sister Cook. And we knew her well. She was in, in the choir with us. She was a very good friend of my mother and my grandmother. And Sister Cook, this was not Super Bowl Sunday, but Super Bowl Sunday always makes me think about this. She was such a big Cowboys fan that when the Cowboys played during their football season, if the pastor's sermon went too long, she would pick up her purse. And in black Baptist churches, when you leave or go to the restroom or leave during the service, you put your index finger up, basically meaning I'll be back in a moment. Sister Cook would do that, but she would not come back. <laughs> she would leave the church if the service interrupted the Cowboys game because she'd much rather be at home watching the Cowboys game thinking about God than in church thinking about the Cowboys, <laughs> um, which is just such a delightful memory. Um, and God bless her memory, and God bless all of us, and God bless the Bengals and the Rams today, and may God keep all of them safe. A bit of context. Also, may God keep all of the um, performers safe. They have some awesome performers at the halftime, so we'll hopefully be out before the halftime show so we can all watch it. A bit of context. When it says Jesus came down from the mountain with them, the them are the newly chosen 12 disciples. In a way, this can be understood, this speech, this sermon that Jesus gives on this great, large, level place, as the Common English Bible calls it, in a way, this can be understood as the commencement of Jesus' three-year campaign. It has all the features of a traditional campaign rally. There's a large crowd, the candidates' small but substantial entourage, those 12 apostles, and a rousing speech. Jesus lays out his platform if you will, for the disciples. God's reign, Jesus says, belongs to the impoverished. 
If you're hungry now, just wait, you'll be fed. Are you weeping? Laughter belongs to you. And if you're rich, you're doomed. Because everything you have has already been given away to the impoverished. The same goes for those who have plenty now, who laugh now, and who have wide appeal, Jesus says. You're in bad company. You're in the company of the false prophets. Ouch. In this stump speech, Jesus invites his original audience and us to imagine a world and social order radically different from our own. This new order is so different that if you come to Jesus suffering with a disease, you're healed. Jesus is not just talking. He is fashioning a new world in front of their and our very eyes. One of the challenges of hearing Luke's sermon on the plane or Matthew's version, which is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount, is the Christian proclivity to do two things. I don't know why I use my wilderness sermons to kind of beat up on old interpretations of popular passages, but this is what we're going to do tonight. So there are two things people do that I would suggest they shouldn't when interpreting this. First, they place the substance of Jesus' words in the future tense. And second, they make the Beatitudes prescriptive rather than descriptive. It is important to remember that for Jesus, the reign of God or the kingdom of God or the commonwealth of God, or as Dr. King called it, beloved community, or whatever you call Jesus' project, has a dynamic reality for him in the present tense. When he heals the sick, feeds the hungry, and sets prisoners free, he is making the kingdom and reign of God tangible. The occupying force is at the door, and it's broken down the door, and now it's in the house with us. Jesus is constantly peering over into God's future and breaks into the present with the good news that the nightmare that this world often is does not compare to the dream God sees it as. This message is so palpable, so frenetic, so captivating that a healing power emanates from Jesus to the point that everyone is healed. I didn't even know I had cataracts. And I saw Jesus and they're gone. Imagine saying that about church tomorrow at work. When someone asks you how church was last night. It was great, you say. A bunch of us got healed. And your coworker will wonder 
when you joined a Pentecostal church? Why exactly should this not be our expectation? If Jesus is present here as bread and wine, flesh and blood, with his healing power emanating from the oil at that prayer station in the rear of the church, why shouldn't you expect God to do powerful things for you today? Why not? We expect the worst. Why not expect love and power and healing and forgiveness to be yours as well? That was the expectation of that great company of disciples and huge crowd of people from Judea and Jerusalem and the area around Tyre and Sidon. Why shouldn't that be the expectation of this great company of disciples and huge crowds of people from all around Denver and Aurora, the Front Range, and Colorado Springs? Why should this not be our expectation that God will act and God will act decisively, not only in the past, but in God's present, in your present. What do you need from God today? What healing do you need? What wholeness do you need? What wholeness or healing does this world stand in need of that you are willing to stand in the gap for? Healing is real. It is real. And it is yours in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.